Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. If you've enjoyed the interviews in this podcast series, will you do a little service work by spreading the word about this rich and meaningful listening experience? This show is another helping hand of AA that we can all extend to alcoholics everywhere. My guest on today's podcast, Steve R., first got sober in the early 1980s, but his five difficult and prolonged relapses over the next 25 years delayed his current sobriety date until July 2008. As bad as things got after each relapse, Steve somehow managed to make it back to AA with plenty of reasons why he slipped. Unlike some alcoholics who stay out for weeks or months before re-entering AA, Steve's daily drinking lasted for years. During those intervals, he somehow managed to keep his job, though his physical and mental health were steadily declining with every drink. Several stints of inpatient treatment restored him to sobriety and guided him to the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. But sporadic sponsorship, intermittent meetings, and insufficient step work eventually gave way to whatever cravings and triggers led Steve back to drinking, often for years at a time. But it didn't kill him. By the time Steve picked up his fifth desire chip, he had been thoroughly beaten by the disease and willing to do whatever was necessary to stay sober. The sponsor who helped him after his fourth relapse was willing to take Steve back after his last re-entry into AA. Through a combination of willingness and compliance, Steve's ultimate surrender transported him to the center of the program. He finally worked the steps, consistently prayed, studied the big book, attended regular meetings, and sponsored other recovering alcoholics. Steve has also volunteered at our local intergroup every week for the past 15 years. For everything Steve lost in a quarter decade of slipping, he never lost the belief that he could stay sober in AA. That he lived to survive his relapses is a miracle in and of itself. His story provides a unique kind of hope to others who have struggled or are now struggling with the desire to drink. So please enjoy the next hour with my longtime friend and AA brother, Steve R. I'm Steve R. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Steve. I really appreciate you doing the interview today on AA Recovery Interviews. Yeah, I didn't want to wait too late. I might say no. <laughs> Think about too much. Well, you know, what's been neat about doing these these interviews now is that I'm getting to more and more of the people who I've seen around AA for a long time, and you're one of them. And you and I have been going to meetings for, I don't know, how many years would you say? Well, t together, this lasted 15 years, so, but I've been in and out of AA since 84, so and I came here in 86. Yeah, that's right. I remember. You came here from California. California. It's one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the show was because a lot of times people wonder if they can get back to AA yeah. after slipping, after relapsing. And of course, we're talking about, you know, a period of like 36 years. What's your anniversary date now? July 31st, 2008, 15 years. 15 years. Well, congratulations on that. I was at the meeting where you got that chip, too, I remember. <laughs> What was there about AA over the years made you feel like you could go back there and get it right the next time? Well, it probably didn't help, didn't hurt that my first sponsor in California, when I first got sober the first time, mm -hmm. he had he had 17 years and had gone back out and came back in and then had 18 years 
by the time I was his sponsee. Huh. And uh, so I said, you know, that's one thing. If you can go out after 17 years and still come back, maybe there's hope. Yeah. <laughs> but probably the main reason I kept going back out, as far as I could tell, was I didn't fully work all the steps, and I didn't really believe in a higher power at the time. It's tough to be able to feel like you're getting anything out of the program. I was probably never one who wanted to get help like for things. Yeah, I'd go to a doctor. I'd go to you know the, or if I went, I expected to be cured and then forget about it. <laughs> and that didn't that doesn't work with AA. <laughs> doesn't work with alcoholism. Is that what you believed though when you first came? Was that you would you could go in and get cured? And I then... think so. It, it you know they. The first rehab I went after my first time at 84 in California was at the St. Luke's uh, a share unit. They brought in AA meetings once a week. Mm-hmm. And so that was my first exposure, real exposure. I'd seen the movies and stuff like that. But What did you think about it? I, I thought I would uh, stay in. I thought I'd become a, a grateful alcoholic. You know, I got my chip from them, which cost $7,000 back then. <laughs> now it cost $20,000 next time we went through a, a, a rehab. That's one of the things I, I definitely can can point out to anybody is that if you don't go to meetings, you don't work the steps, you will go back out. At least I they, that's what happened to me. I found other reasons, other things to do. Uh, I was traveling a lot at the time. I'd go to different cities across the U.S., and then later we became almost international. And you know, when I came to Houston, was laid off, and I got hired here. Yeah. Although my work was overseas, traveling to foreign countries and stuff like that. So I was a safety manager, so I'd have to go visit places for a day here, two days there, a week there, three weeks there. So. I was far away from, from AA, and AA wasn't as available in places like that back in, in the 80s and 90s. Of course, uh, that kind of travel and schedule a lot of people use as a, a reason why they went back out or they exactly. couldn't continue to go to meetings and everything. And also the fact that you know, you're, you're on a plane taking off to go to London, and yeah. they bring out champagne or mimosas. Uh, one mimosa won't hurt me. Nobody yeah. else is going to know it. Mimosa, when you get on the plane, you have wine or drinks before yeah. and after during the meal and liqueur afterwards, and you could get almost anything you wanted from then on business class. Well, I, I do want to talk about the different relapses. I was just, what was your, uh, your upbringing and childhood like that might have predicted future issues with addiction and, and alcoholism? Neither of my parents drank much when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until in the 70s, probably, when they weren't poor, but they were definitely not rich by any stretch mm-hmm. of imagination. Sure. So there was never hardly any booze around the house. Mm-hmm. They couldn't afford to go out and drink a lot. At least that's the way they saw it. My father was driven by the Depression, so he saving money, making money, that was his, you know, he didn't have time to stop and go drink. Really? <laughs> so it was, he had a, a job with this radio firm in Dallas and worked on the other side of town from Richmond, uh, Rich, Richardson from Oak Cliff. So that was a long drive. And then later on, he and his partner formed another business. So he was working two jobs in effect to make money. And I started working for him when I was a kid, just pushing the broom around the shop and stuff like that. It was, it was foam plastics business, uh, polystyrene. Was he gone a good deal of the time when you were growing up? No, they, they were 
at work and then at the yeah. shop. But then I had to go to the shop to help clean. So we'd saw him. In fact, that's one of the reasons I didn't take over the business, I think, because that's what he wanted in the end. My brother couldn't do it. My sisters couldn't do it. So after I was the only one that got a degree yeah. from UT, and so I, uh, he wanted me to take over the business. But I didn't want any part of it after working in that shop all the way through from, from 10, 11, 12 to 18, 20 when I was in college at, during the summers. Yeah. Now, you mentioned a, a brother and some sisters. How many siblings? I had two sisters, two older sisters and one older brother. Okay, so you were the youngest, youngest in the family. Youngest in the family. So, you know, I always got along well with my sisters, but mm -hmm. not my brother. He was the next oldest to me. How much older was he? Two years. What I used to say was he wasn't, I had more brother figures in AA than I ever had from my brother. Yeah, that's that's how it was for me, too. And I like to say... You know, you, Steve, are like the brother I never had, and I've got a brother. In fact, my sisters would do almost anything for me, and I would do almost anything for them. It wasn't the same feeling with him. Yeah, that's tough. That's tough. So what are your recollections of how you perceived If somebody said when you were 8 or 10 years old, that man over there is an alcoholic, what was your understanding of what an alcoholic was or what drinking alcohol might be about? I didn't have a very good idea about it at back that age because the only real alcoholism I can look back and see now was my aunt, my father's side. She she was obviously an alcoholic because we would used to go over to their place uh, when they were in an apartment, go swimming in the pool and stuff. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and she was a home a housewife, so uh, she'd be laying down a lot. Stuff yeah. like that. Uh -huh. When she, they moved down the street from us a few, number of years later, she cooked. She cooked great. She was a great cook and everything. Cooked us dinners and stuff. Mm -hmm. But she, as soon as she finished, it was like she wanted to go lay down. <laughs> she never to stay to eat. And I, a lot of us, the youngers, couldn't understand what was going on. Yeah. Later figured out it was alcoholism. How much later did you figure that out, and how did you kind of process that? Probably about well, as. 14, 15, 16, yeah. something like that. I really, you know, we didn't see a lot of that kind of thing in our family, so it wasn't something that that attracted our attention a lot. So, As you were growing up, a lot of the people I interview, and certainly for me and other people you and I see in rooms, they have all the, the whole spectrum of upbringings, from the very, very dysfunctional all the way up to guys who say, my, my childhood was great. And, you know, the result, net result of both of those is they end up in AA. How would you classify or label your, your childhood with regard to what it was like for you growing up? Was it easy, hard, good, bad? What, what, how would you describe it? In general, you know, from family life, it was pretty good. Mm -hmm. the, uh, I, could, I could still recall myself being not having much confidence in myself and mm -hmm. things of that nature. I remember making something in high grade school and it got rejected because my father helped me do it. That was one of those things where I learned not to have somebody else help you do anything because I had to do something totally different and I was kind of ridiculed because uh, your father did it, you didn't do it. So from then on, if I didn't do it myself, I didn't do it. So What a lesson to get. A lesson to, to, to get. And uh, in some ways it was good, made you independent in a lot of other ways, but... You know, I, you know, I'd like to say I've never been married, 
part of mm -hmm. that reason probably is had something to do with that too. I couldn't depend on anybody else that had to do it myself. Mm -hmm. I've had friends and, and girlfriends across the years and stuff, but I live alone. I've lived alone for most of my life. Uh, short times with girlfriends, you know, right. stuff like that. But and and roommates in in college and in in uh, uh, when I got to CF Braun in California, yeah. when I was still first got my first real job. Uh -huh. uh, I moved several of us moved in together and and shared a house together and stuff like that. Isn't that interesting? How something happens to you when you're a kid. You know, you're in first grade or third grade or whatever, and it, and like what happened when you took that project in, had that not happened, what your trajectory of your life would have been like. But I, I know for me as well, growing up in the kind of house I lived in greatly affected the rest of my life, without a doubt. And sometimes the good things, sometimes the bad things, but yeah. nevertheless, you go through your life and, and you made a decision back then that's kind of been part of your life the whole time. Yeah. You kind of isolate yourself a lot, and uh, yeah. unless it's an accepted way of getting help, of going to a doctor, doing this, doing that. Of course, men help, helping each other wasn't one of those things that you normally did. Like yeah. asking, asking you, you know, you've had this kind of a physical disease. You know, what do you, how you treat, how you prostate problem? You go, how do you dealing with that? You know, people didn't talk about that when they were younger. Well, you and I come from the gen the John Wayne generation, where you know you. You swallow your problems and you just deal with them yeah, in, deal in with a way that doesn't involve other people. Don't complain. Don't complain. Be self-sufficient, self-reliant, all that good stuff. How, how old were you when you, when you first started drinking? Uh, I remember going up in Denver to visit cousins with my parents, and uh -huh. they, we went up to Central City oh, with yeah. my uncle and my bro brother and father, and we went to this this old bar and they gave me a beer there and I was 16 or something like that I was with my parents and all this stuff so it won't hurt him a few years later I flew out to California when I was 17 with my sister and my mother my sister was an American Airlines stewardess and so we flew out there to to San Francisco to visit and, and see the sights and stuff and got some booze on the plane Got a beer in San Francisco, even though the waitress asked about it. I got it anyway. So, uh, so it was kind of slow, uh, a yeah. little bit. It wasn't really until I was eighteen that I bought my first beer. I bought a twelve pack. Actually, four of us went. We're out driving around. We said we we're going to get some beer. So, of the three, one goes younger and looked it, so he couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. But two of them. Both of them look, I thought, look older than I did. They went in and got rejected, got carded. <laughs> I went in and bought, came back with a case of beer. <laughs> so I was the hero. Yeah, you were the hero. I you was were, the hero. You were in the fact, hero. later on, a few friends uh, asked me if I'd go buy them some beer for their party, even though I wasn't invited to the party. So I did. But, you know, so I, again, I was the hero. So it was something I could do that they couldn't do. What was the environment like when you were uh, in middle school and high school that might have influenced your not drinking during those times? It sounds like you started after that period. Yeah, well, it was in my senior year when I started. That was because I was 18 in my senior year. Yeah, and sur surely there was booze and drugs around you at the time. I really didn't see except beer 
in high school and junior high never heard about people taking drugs to speak of. Mm. We had one guy called Boozer, and we all assumed it was because he was a drinker. Mm. But uh, I really didn't, in, in the school around me, I really didn't see it. Mm. Maybe I was blind <laughs> to it. If you were like I was when I was a kid, uh, I didn't start drinking until I was 18, even though I'd gotten drunk at my own bar mitzvah <laughs> at 13. But, you know, those are isolated times. Sure. But I didn't start until after I was out of high school. And uh, most people I've interviewed, that if they start drinking at an early age, it's usually around 13 or 14. Yeah. I didn't hang with a crowd that drank. Exactly. So because of that, I didn't drink. It wasn't until I got to college and the whole atmosphere was geared towards drinking. <laughs> yes. How was that for you? It was the same way because after my freshman year, mm-hmm. I was in a dorm, mm-hmm. and or at least the first semester. I'm, I have a hard time even separating them sure. so long ago. But I found a friend who was one year ahead of me, and he and his brother and another friend were going to rent an apartment. They needed one more, so hmm. I got in with them. And before the school year started in, in the fall, we all went to got there early and went down to Port Aransas to go, go to the beach. And we drank beer and stuff at the, at the beach and everything else. We, we'd buy a, each buy a bottle of bourbon mm-hmm. or something like that. And, and that lasts us for three months, six months. You know, I don't know. I can't remember now. So these are guys who didn't really drink either. No. We had some parties. We bought a keg of beer for that. You know, we we all go to the grocery store together and buy food for a week, $7 a piece. Yeah. <laughs> that was in Austin, Texas in 1969 or 70, 71. Those so were the days. It was the days. <laughs> wow. But, you know. We didn't really couldn't afford to go buy an eleven, and that's of course when we started seeing marijuana and things like that coming around. One of my roommates, especially, he liked it a lot. Maybe a, one of those good bad experiences was I had some uh, rum and coke before I uh, go out to dinner and afterwards, and then we went to this party where they had marijuana, and after smoking along with everybody else. I ended up barfing on my roommate's girlfriend. <laughs> so what a bad experience. A bad experience, which <laughs> I didn't really want to any try any more marijuana or rum anymore for a while. <laughs> but I still tried beer and all this stuff. So now that was back at a time, nineteen sixty nine, the war is still on in Vietnam and you're eighteen, nineteen years old. Yeah. And I had a draft number of one sixty nine or something like that. So if I hadn't been in college, I probably would have gone. Really? Wow. Wow. My brother had three three fifty or something like that. Oh, so he was way he was no no problems and, there, and he wasn't in school. But you mentioned that you're the only one of the four who got a degree who went and got a degree. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. My father took a lot of pride in that. He because they were weren't they were pretty poor when he was growing up. He never went past like ninth or tenth grade. He self-studied himself. To, he was the head of quality control for a, a multi-million-dollar uh, radio company that made radios for airplanes, jets, and became uh, uh, you know set up this other business and made a million dollars you know in wow. that business. So, you know, he was very bright, very creative, and all this other stuff. He just didn't have the school learning 
and he, you know, he, he regretted that, but yeah. didn't stop him from doing a lot of things. So you were the one in the family to fulfill family goal or dream, yeah. I guess, right? Yeah. So you're in college. Uh, what were you studying? Well, I started undecided, mm-hmm. and after uh, taking a lot of the uh, math and science and all this stuff, and they talked to me about it, and I decided to go into electrical engineering. I liked electronics and stuff like that, but electrical engineering wasn't anything like what I was oh, used to in okay. that, when I was a kid. I liked to play with, you know, with uh, Heath kits and stuff yeah, like with that. Your dad being in radio making, business, yeah, right. He always wanted me to engineer, I think, and. But after a couple of years, uh, I was I went to like three one, three two, maybe two eight, and then I went to a grade point average at point one five, and that's when I was I was drinking uh, more than I should. I stopped going to a couple of classes. I was taking way too many hours for what I was trying to do, and I was taking like partial differential equations with engineering applications, <laughs> physics and heat transfer, wave optics and uh, computer programming, which was really blowing my mind. It was, it was just, and I wasn't interested in any of it. So I ended up uh, changing majors to psychology because I wanted to understand why do I act the way I do? Why do I do the things I do? That's one of the big reasons people do that. Four point four point three six four point graduated with honors because <laughs> I enjoyed it. I would read while drinking some wine, stuff like that. It never affected my schooling. That's one thing about the, my drinking in college. You know, I didn't miss any classes. I didn't drink enough to affect me that way. And I don't think I drank a whole lot that time. You know, I I couldn't afford it. I was living apartment. I had a roommate, mm-hmm. and and he was into marijuana more than drinking. Mm-hmm. And he tried to get me to every now and then. And my mother used to always say, you know, stay away from them drugs. You know, if you want to drink something, come in. You can have all the alcohol you want. And and of course later on she became uh, alcoholic too. She she went into assisted living and gave up smoking and drinking, pretty much. Isn't that amazing? That's weird. So you started at around 18, but you really ramped it up through your college years. Yeah, I call it my apprenticeship years, learning to use alcohol when I was lonely. I didn't have a girlfriend. I didn't, you know, I had roommates and stuff like that, but they'd go out. At one couple of them had living girlfriends almost, and and uh, I had one girlfriend in Dallas, but, you know, I didn't see her that often. And, Sounds like a pretty lonely way to live. Yeah, and I wasn't very aggressive, <laughs> I guess you'd say, though I did have some situations where I got myself into trouble. I, I had that same kind of experience, you know, where I didn't have a steady girlfriend. I had one in high school and actually didn't drink or use drugs during high school because she didn't want me to, and it was either her or that. And being able to have a girlfriend meant more to me than drinking or using. But when I got to college, everything was geared around drinking and using to the extent that she and I went to the same school together. We broke up so that I could pursue my drinking and using. And then whenever it was that I'd pursue the ladies, I was always so drunk or stoned that I wasn't very (laughs) attractive anyway. Yeah, I used to drink before going on a date. Yeah, yeah, I did too. And then later on, it was I would... Pretty controlled when I was out, but afterwards I'd go back and I had a bottle at home, so I'd continue drinking into the night. So drinking then is it is it safe to say that drinking kind of became your companion? Exactly, my best friend. 
what you did when you didn't think of anything else to do. Where I play golf, uh, I got to where, you know, I couldn't hardly play sometimes. I and so hungover. Still, if you drink to two in the morning, at or eight o'clock in the morning, you still got a high percentage in your body. That's, still, yeah, that's and right. so you're not you're not just hangover. It's it's you're still drunk. <laughs> At what point would you have gotten to that alcohol was starting to run the show for you? I'd say it was after I graduated. I got a job in Sweeney, Texas, mm-hmm. and uh, I had a girlfriend down there, and we were sometimes living together and stuff like that. And we we both drank a lot, and uh, in fact, I almost got busted on Christmas Eve coming home from a party. Uh, and the cop stopped us, and and uh, luckily they, she said she only had a few, so they let her drive us home. Later on, she said she was pregnant, and she wasn't, and so we kind of broke up over that. And uh, She said she was pregnant, but she wasn't? Yeah, it turned out she wasn't. Later on, she said, no, I'm not. So she wanted to get married. But a few weeks later, she said, I'm not pregnant after all, so... During all that time, I was going home from work straight drinking till I went to bed and, and passing out. And I did that. And my drinking just escalated yeah. 100% after that. And I never came back till I went to AA. So were you a blackout drinker? I'd, I'd say so. There's not a lot of things I didn't remember doing. No, I, I remember having a hard time finding my cars because I parked it two doors down but uh i remember it up to the time i passed out you know stuff like that but but i definitely passed out a number (laughs) that's a pretty typical pattern for a lot of alcoholics so when you were drinking and working at the same time what was your drinking behavior like while uh, while you were working and while you were traveling around to these different jobs of course in the construction engineering construction business drinking was a way of life and uh I remember even after a, a project, a big concrete pour was done, the the construction manager had a, 10 cases of beer brought out for the, all the guys and everything else. So he was like, and one guy used to have a bottle in his desk, stuff like that. But, you know, it, my uh, I didn't miss any work until that time in Sweeney. Uh, after that, mm-hmm. I missed a lot of work uh, due to hangovers. Mm-hmm. And uh, or because I was still drunk, I'd start to get to go to work and I said, I can't do this. Or I'd get to work and hide out in the restroom or try to avoid people and stuff like that. I was always afraid they'd see my red eyes and my nose starting to get a little red yeah. and all this stuff. And it, uh, it got harder and harder to hide. Yeah. What kind of consequences did you face? I, uh, I had went to a party at my boss's house uh-huh. and Afterwards, I went home and drank that weekend, and on Monday went into work, still pretty badly hangover. And in fact, I ended up throwing up in my office in the trash can, and they all found out about it and and uh, told them that kind of what happened after the party. I it was on a maybe it was on a Sunday, I can't remember, and I had, I think I fell down some stairs a little later in the week or the month, and my boss later. He called me in and said, do you have a problem with alcohol? And I said, yes, I think I do. How old would you have been at this time? Um, that was 34, 34, yeah. In, in what kind of way did he confront you? Was it uh, compassionate or was it uh, cold and hard? Compassionate, I guess. He, t- he said, you know, do you have a problem? You know, 
you know, he told me about some other guys. And in fact, he introduced me to one of them and hmm. uh, uh, who had a problem. And he had to take uh, an abuse. He was bad, hmm. bad case. Mm-hmm. But he used to tear hotel rooms and stuff like that. And I never did anything like that. But it, he said you could either, there's the St. Luke's share unit. There You can go to AA. You can hospital or something like that. I forget all the options. But I said, I think because you now know, and I admitted it and everything, that maybe I can stop myself. And I probably did for about a month then I got this in my mind that maybe I could buy a pint and drink on a weekend and try to control it, my control drinking phase. Mm-hmm. Uh, within three months, I was drinking heavily again. And then finally in May, right before of that same year, I went on vacation for about a week. and I stayed drunk the whole time, just about. Mm. And I started throwing up blood, and I called my brother-in-law Asked him to take me to that St. Luke's, and uh, I I entered the uh, rehab. We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, I invite you to check out my latest audiobook, Alcoholics Anonymous, the story of how more than 100 men have recovered from alcoholism. This is the word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of the first edition of the big book, published in 1939. It's a relaxing yet meaningful and engaging way to listen to the big book anytime, place. Have a free listen at Audible, iTunes, or Amazon. While you're there, search for my other audiobook, Lost Stories of the Big Book. 30 original stories from the first and or second editions missing from the third and fourth editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's also available from Amazon as a Kindle book or in paperback if you'd like to read along. You're going to love it. And we're back. When you would drink after being sober, let's say for a month, or let's say you were dry for a month, what do you remember your thinking might have been at that time? I couldn't look at billboards for liquor stores. And I couldn't avoid because if I started thinking about it, the craving would, would uh, kind of like a psychological thing, you know, used to go there. And in fact, that's one of the things I learned in my later trips out was, to, you know, I can't have those thoughts. I have to stop them and think about something else, do something else, help somebody. You know, that's one of the benefits of AA. That, yeah, being of service. Yeah, and, and just not dwelling on those thoughts. If you dwell on it, your mind will start to come up with reasons why you can drink. Yeah, and then the minute you do, you remember why you can't, but then it's too late anyway. You're lost. So you might as well. You might as well. Yeah, I get that. I get that. So you were throwing up blood, which meant that you had some kind of internal something going on. Right. What what did they diagnose you with when at the hospital there? Well, alcoholism and, yeah. and I, I forget that it's been so long. They, like an ulcerated they, stomach or liver or something like that. Yeah. There was no long-term damage, apparently. They didn't. They basically uh, gave me a little sip of booze when I got in there to kind of calm myself down and uh, put me on some drugs and stuff. and Detoxing? Shakes and the DTs and stuff, whatever. Sometimes I couldn't drink for three, four days because I was feeling so bad. And then other times, I maybe it was depending on what I drank or how I drank. The next day, I would in the morning, I'd have a beer or something like that to try to clear my head a little bit. Mm. <laughs> but uh, the hangovers were the worst, and the just the pain, just all over pain and headache, and you know. So I 
you'd think that would be enough to tell you not to do it again, but <laughs> we all know that. <laughs> well, when, when the pain lets up, then why not do it again? This time exactly. will be different, we tell ourselves, yeah. right? So the St. Luke's, that was your first uh, rehab, your yeah. first rehab, residential, you were living there? Yeah, for, for one month. What was your exposure to AA while you were in that program? They had a weekly meeting that they? they'd let us go to. Most of the, the counselors were in AA, I believe. So you're there for a month. What was the handoff like to AA after you got out? It was not as strong as some I've seen like here these days. Um, uh, I wasn't required to, to do There was some. I think there was some aftercare once a week or something like that. I, a lot of it's very vague to me now because I've killed, still killed a lot of brain cells after that. That's one of the reasons I asked that question because quite often there's a disconnect between the rehab and AA because people come out of rehab thinking that's all they really need, even though AA was nice while they were in rehab. That's very nice. But now I'm out after a month. I'm treated. Yeah, I'm cured. I'm, I'm cured. And, and, of course, that's where the handoff usually falls apart. Yeah, and though we did have... Because I went through an EAP mm -hmm. at the company, some of the people who had gone through before me, they had started having meetings at work at lunchtime, uh -huh. and so the EAP people taught me about it and introduced me to one of them, I think. And so we all said, "Well, yeah, this is a good idea. We can hey lunch have an AA meeting." We uh, told them, "Don't give us their name, but you can give them." them our name so uh -huh. that they can come and join us and stuff in fact one guy even put a little sign on the bulletin board said if you're a friend of bill w called such and such a name <laughs> number the only, the only one ever called was said who the hell's bill w <laughs> we had three or four people that meet for lunch for everyone and then of course my travel and everything else came up and and then i left the company to come to houston after that after three years so that was in 1984 84 that you had your first stint. How long did you stay sober? Till 87. I, 86, I came here in June. I didn't go to many meetings. I didn't have a sponsor out here. My sponsor in LA, we kind of faded away. In November of 87, I broke up with the girlfriend I had in California that I had for about four or five years. Mm. And from here, and I went out and bought some wine coolers that evening. Did they do the job? I can't remember, but for sure. But uh, it uh, it was the start. It was the start because <laughs> I'd been drinking like sharps and O'Doul's before that. So you were you were playing at being sober. Right. What would you say the quality of your program? Like a you know the quality of say one to ten. One. Yeah, I went to a, f a couple of meetings. I, there was one out near me. There was. Uh, so you weren't you weren't earnest about it at that point. No, I I didn't mention this earlier, but with the former company in California, after I went through the rehab, they asked me to help write a new drug and alcohol policy oh, wow. for the construction division. Alcohol and drugs were becoming a big problem on job sites, especially drugs. And you're the safety guy. I'm the safety manager. So yeah. we developed a policy. I talked to people in EAPs, I talked to Fleur talked to an airline company and all about drug and alcohol abuse and testing and what did they do and yeah. pro policies and stuff. I read up all and everything. And I wrote a policy. We set up drug testing for because we were going to be sending people to Kuwait. We were bought out by Kuwait oil. So we had jobs now in Kuwait where if you got caught drinking or drugging or had an accident, 
boy, you didn't want to go to their jails. So it was, let's head off some trouble by making sure we don't send anybody who has a real drug and alcohol problem. So we did that. When I went to Kellogg in Houston, almost immediately I was asked to do the similar thing. And because we're like, we had a job in Torrance, California, that uh, we started drug testing. And we had like a 50, 60 percent failure rate. Oh, my God. And we talked to Brown and Root out there, and they told us the same thing. So that's one of the, another reason we we set it up. So, so in two separate companies, I, now during that three-year period, I'd set up a drug and alcohol screening program. She must have felt pretty proud to, to have been part of that. Yeah. So I was doing all that, but I really wasn't going to that many meetings and stuff like that. Some people might look at that and say, well, that's kind of like service, Steve. Isn't, isn't it possible that that kind of service could have kept you sober? Well, it, it did for that length of time. But after that was over with, then I started drinking again. <laughs> so how long after, after you slipped at three years in 87... 87, yeah. 89 was when I went back in the second rehab. Okay, so for two years. Two years, I drank. After that breakup in the wine coolers, what were those two years like? It got progressively worse, uh, and I started drinking and missing work here and there. And and uh, I did a lot of traveling, I think, at that time. It wasn't good. <laughs> what did the bottom of the hole look like at that time when you were about ready to go back into the program? That was when I was near suicidal. That's when I went to the garage, turned on the car, and had a bottle with me. But oh. it was August in the heat of the summer. I couldn't stand it. <laughs> that was probably saved my life. <laughs> you didn't like the sweat, so you didn't kill yourself. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. You couldn't, you couldn't, you know, you can't leave, you can't roll up all the windows and keep the air conditioning in, right? If you're trying to breathe in the, the exhaust from the fumes. God doing for you what you couldn't do for yourself, I guess. Yeah, huh? or in your own stupidity about not planning these things. But then I drove out to Austin and I even thought about couldn't myself and mm. and I drank until I finally uh, drove up to Dallas and went to my parents' house and said I need help. I was thirty nine. So you told your parents you needed help, and that's when I went to the rehab hospital. Now you were still working at that time, right? Yeah, I never left. In fact, they thought everything was fine. They didn't realize I was having troubles. Mm. I, in fact, my father ended up having to pay for the rehab because at the time because. Uh, they wanted me to be shipped down to Houston to be evaluated and mm. and treated down there. And because they did, the EAP wouldn't cover it or something like that. So, so your dad so, footed the bill. Yeah. So how, how long did you stay that time? 30 days. Then I came back to Houston and started going to AA, got a sponsor, a guy named Steve, Steve uh, C. We probably went through three or four steps. And I think either I started traveling again and stuff kind of went again. When you drank and you uh, finally hit bottom, you come back to AA, what was what were you thinking when you came back to those first meetings? Was there a sense of shame or relief? What, what, what were the feelings around having to go back to AA for a second, third time? Well, I didn't go to that many AA meetings in Houston before I went back out again. Uh-huh. They were all in California. Right. A lot of people didn't know who I was or didn't see me before. So, and, and it was funny, it was uh, Ray worked for Kellogg, and he was one of the guys I worked with a lot. He was at the first meeting I went to when I went up to get my desire chip. When I walked back, he was standing there uh, <laughs> and shook my, gave me a hug and everything. Right. So 
so I, I was there was uh, somebody there and there he had somebody else working for him who was an AA and stuff like that so so that was kind of my real reemergence back into AA did you have a sense of confidence that AA would work for you if you went back I'm not sure it, it uh I still didn't have any belief in spirituality and such mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and I was during all that time during that phase I didn't uh, pray I didn't really uh, go to church or anything like that and, and and I guess I relied on the uh group and my sponsor stuff like that but with traveling so much you weren't around your group exactly and obviously it didn't work because in four years I went back out again and a lot of that was started on trips out of the country. So you're like the guy who doesn't take all those trips but he just stops going to his many meetings until he finally drinks. Right. So what did the next bottom, what bottom did you hit? The next time it was uh, I stayed sober till like 93. So that would have been? Like four years and then from 93 to 97 I drank and I was about to be asked to go to Nigeria for a job, and I was drinking and everything else. And I said, I just can't do this. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, my sleep was a, a bad problem. And so I called in and told them, I can't go, and I, I don't know if I'm coming back. Mm-hmm. So I, I wasn't really suicidal, but I definitely was depressed and didn't know what to do. So I went to a, re, a counselor. Mm-hmm. I also went to a, my health professionals and they diagnosed me with sleep apnea, mm. and uh, I got the surgery for sleep apnea, and I had I uh, got a CPAP machine and all that stuff, and mm-hmm. I thought that was part of my problem. I was overweight. I was weighed about 280 then, and I ended up on a diet, and I lost 90 pounds. Mm-hmm. And during that phase from 97 to 99, I was in great, you know, great condition. And, in fact, that was probably my downfall because I thought, I was cured. I, you know, I lost all this weight. I was. I could look positively upon myself. Before I was always didn't have much confidence in myself, and and then so I went up in California. I went out and drank again when I was on vacation out there in '99. So you do. You weren't drinking during between '97 uh, and '99 because you thought that these other measures would be the thing that... I was going to AA with, at that time. It was probably when, when Jim M. was my sponsor. Yeah, I remember that. I would talk a lot about, you know, I, you know, I, I lost a lot of weight and I did I in like 12 weeks. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> and uh, I felt more positive than I had and I was on Zoloft. So the positivity and the antidepressants gave you a sense that you could drink again. Yeah. And I went to California on a, on a, down in Newport Beach and I was on a vacation and with me and my sister. And I ended up, uh, like I say, maybe I can try it again. This Maybe this solves all my other This I was drinking because, you know, my psychology, I thought maybe this is the reason I was drinking all this time because I really didn't like myself. I was trying to kill myself. So you're walking the plank yet again. Yeah, ever again. And it only took me four years to get back in again. I came back in. 2000. That's right. It was only out for a year. You were out for a year at that point. Now, when you came back, did you go to another rehab or you came right back to AA? No, I came back into AA. And from 97 to, in 97, I didn't go to rehab. I went to a counselor. Okay. And then 99, the same thing. I just went straight back to AA, didn't go to a counselor. I figured I'd have heard all their stuff. <laughs> yeah, I get that. I get that. So when you went back in, and I know Jim, Jim was one of my best friends for many years until he passed away. 
he was very no nonsense about the program and in his own working of it. I know that. And in the time I got to spend with him, was that the first he had sponsored you? Was in '97? I think so. And and then in '99 I came back to him. I uh, after drinking and and everything, and I, I you know this is this is not going to work again. So I ended up coming back and saying, "Will you take me back?" <laughs> Which he did. Yeah. And we started working the steps, and we got again. I think my travel took me away for a lot, and so we got through about four, I think, or five, and then. I'm not really sure of all the details anymore, but but uh, I think it was because of all the travel and everything else. We just kind of slipped apart, and then I started drinking again in 2004. So you were sober then at that point for an AA? Four years, at 2000, 2004. Okay, so that would have been, 2004 would have been your fifth relapse or uh, fourth? Four, fifth. Fifth relapse, yeah. okay. So you relapsed five times, and I happen to know that that was the last time that you relapsed. Right. Because I came back in in 2008 and stayed since. Yeah, that's amazing. You know, most people don't make it back. And to make it back after one slip is amazing. I mean, to make it back after a couple is astounding. But how did you get back after five? Part of it, I think, was just I knew that that worked. I mean, that I'd stayed sober during those times. And it it worked when I worked it. (laughs) Or did. I was a lot of times, like you say, it was the... Just coming back in, it's different. You're you're not doing the same things you were doing when you're drinking. You're going to meetings. You're you're talking to people. You're you maybe you're doing some service. I was chairing some meetings and leading some meetings and stuff like that. And then in 2008 is when Jim got me into the uh, intergroup. That's been a big thing for me. Yeah, I remember that. I remember him. Him saying that one of the reasons you probably kept slipping is because you weren't being of service. Yeah, and and I I never I never thought you could really sponsor anybody if you hadn't worked through all the steps. So I'd never worked all the steps. So <laughs> I didn't have to worry about that. <laughs> yeah, and I did some leading of meetings and stuff like that when I was before, but I never did anything else. I never prayed. I never, you know, anything. He was pretty patient with you, as I recall. Yeah, yeah. He was not a, a big book thumper or you know or my way of the highway type thing he he was one of those kind of people i could deal with for sure <laughs> maybe it was better if i had somebody tougher i don't know were you reluctant to call him back when you slipped a couple times under his tutelage well i i'm, I'm sure i i didn't feel good about it but uh i knew at least nothing else it would be a start to getting back yeah because uh you know the first time when I came back in 89, mm-hmm. I asked Ray to be my sponsor. I believe it was, that was the time he referred me to Jim. Yeah, Jim and Ray were pretty close. Right. Yeah, they were. They kind of co-sponsored each other because I think his sponsor was somewhere else. And then in uh, 99, I came back to him. Then 2004 or 8, I came back to him. Yeah, so. and I, I kept seeing you when, you when you were coming back in. And I think the last time you slipped... Uh, a number of us felt like we might not see you again. And Jim was very concerned at the time. But you got back in 2008. Right. What did you do different from the other times you were in AA? Well, of course, the the incidents that came back in was also tied into a DWI in Roswell, New Mexico. So that 
was the first time that had happened in all the years. I'd never lost a job. I, I came close a couple of times, but I never lost a job, never had a, never killed anybody in a car wreck or anything else like that. Uh, but this is the first time I'd been stopped and given a speeding ticket uh-huh. while I was drinking. But ne- And I'd been stopped and told to go to a restaurant and have a coffee and then go home back in Dallas, uh, Houston. Wow. But I'd never had a DWI. And this time it was uh, like a 1.6 level of alcohol. It could have been a jail sentence and... And could be in a lot of other things, and uh, got a lawyer, and that was when I called Jim from from uh, Roswell, and he and Benjamin were all in the same car together when I called him. <laughs> so I talked to him about it, what I should do, and and I started going to meetings out in Roswell before I left. And the first meeting I went to when I came back was the uh, outpost. I remember, I remember when you came back. So you got off. You didn't have to serve any time. Just the time I served in that when I was <laughs> arrested, and the next day I guess I was released. Yeah. So I paid my own bail because I had enough money with me. So that was your turning point at that point. Right. What did I do differently? Well, I think I'd finally gotten the message that I'd never prayed before. Mm-hmm. Every morning now I say the third and seventh step prayer. I memorized the. 11-step meditation, of course, the serenity prayer. I say that every night and asking God to keep me sober every day and keep and thank him for keeping me sober every night. I've gone to th- my three or four meetings every week. Mm-hmm. This one, my home meeting on Monday nights and the Sunday night. I've been at Intergroup now for 15 years. That's amazing. Answering the phones and you know, get 12-step calls and rehabs and uh uh, answering questions about AA and what they like and everything else. Sure does seem like it would keep a guy in the middle of the program. It sure helps. And it's like I I, I probably missed a whole lot more work than I ever missed at the time <laughs> at the end of group now, <laughs> for sure. Uh, I haven't already, the only time I missed it was on a charity golf tournament, I think, <laughs> or I was sick. Isn't that something? So 15 years at Intergroup, a regular schedule of meetings, talking to your sponsor all the time, certainly praying, working with others. I had two sponsees. One of them you set up probably about 10 years ago. Yeah, uh-huh. I remember. <laughs> and that. then Jim kind of guided uh, Ray, another guy, to me Yeah, not too long ago. I, I see Ray He's still time to time. Yeah. He, he won't seem, seem, he keeps saying he's going to keep coming back, but he doesn't to this meeting. <laughs> <laughs> well, so. let me let me ask you. In, so you've been sober now 15 years. Were there times that you felt like going back out or was the craving gone by the time you came back for this last go? There are probably times where I thought, boy, sure would taste good or this would or some of these new drinks they're talking about. But I don't let those thoughts hang around anymore. That's one of the main things I learned, too, was that I just can't think that way. And I've got that etched into my brain, I think. How does that function? Well, if I, I have one the other day, I was seeing something like that, and I, and I can't think that way and, and uh, go off on some other thought, whatever it can be. Before, I would nurse that thought, you know, and, and say, well, well, how would I do it? And, you know, you, you, after a while, you do it. <laughs> well, that's true. It doesn't take too much massaging of a thought to turn it into a craving, yeah. does it? That's one thing I, you know, I, I even did some of these, what, Tony Robbins tapes a long time ago and stuff like that. And, 
And uh, a lot of those work if you do what's required. <laughs> if you just listen to them, if it's all up here, it's nothing going to change. But by doing the steps, by and and I've done them again now with uh, Dale. What would Dale do? Uh, His story is a lot like yours in that it wasn't until he really got involved in service and sponsoring other guys that his program really kind of took off and kind of made it to the next level. Is that how it kind of worked for you as well? Yeah, because before, like I say, AA was, or being sober was just off to the side right? instead of a central part of what you do. Also, it didn't help. Didn't hurt that I was retired fully. <laughs> I didn't have to worry about traveling and and uh, being in in places where I might not should be and and uh, being offered drinks at every turn and all this kind of stuff. That so what taking early retirement was probably a good thing. I I got as much money now as I had back when I retired or more. That's good. so that's good. So it's not like it's it hurt me at all, uh, but it did me a whole lot. Of, of uh, good, I think, to, to yeah. not be exposed to that environment anymore. Well, and you've been a real fixture around the meetings that you and I go to. You know, men can count on seeing you, and you're you're reliable, and when you say you're going to be somewhere, I've noticed you're there, and that's kind of cool. What uh, things have occurred during your sobriety that were particularly hard for you? Well, my sister and brother dying last in the last two years. Uh, my sister and, and and my parents before in in two thousand seven. That was four years over though. Um, How did you handle those situations? Well, not, you know, not too good because I was drinking all the time before then. But when my my sister died and my, my brother, of course, I was in the process of helping both of them. Uh, so I was actually in a lot of service there from that point of view, not AA service, but my brother and my sister and my uh, uh, brother-in-law were trying to help him out, get him into out of his apartment where he was living with a drug dealer and a that moved in with him and brought his prostitute girlfriend. <laughs> and he was he was like 72. Two at the time, I think. So, did he die from the disease of alcoholism? No, he not alcoholism because he didn't drink really. Okay, he was he had other problems, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, emotional and and uh, he did use marijuana. I understand, and and he did get involved with crack at the end there. But when when uh, we took him to a rehab type place, they really said he well he's not really what he really needs is. Is something to deal with this? Is uh, someone who's getting almost senile <laughs> to the point of the other stuff, and he didn't, tr- you know, he was panhandling on the streets of, and he was, you know, he throwing away the money that my parents had given him, and he he got online and was falling in love with women that had, you know, were trying to take him for his money and what he he didn't have any. So. But he probably lied on Facebook. So, you know, it, I was in the process of helping him and my sister when they both died. Uh, or she died in 2020. Uh, and she was in the hospital. She had lots of things. She was COPD and had spoke. She still drank a little, but nothing like I did. She was a heavy smoker, though. Heavy smoker. Yeah. 
and she was isolating and she was didn't want to seek help and she was uh, just all the things that might go along with alcoholism but but she didn't really drink that much I don't believe so you're the guy who probably wouldn't have survived had he not stopped drinking right being able to be there for your brother and sister in their last years because you were sober right yeah so that's a great story it it's kind of weird the way I, with my parents I was helping them a lot too at the it, it, but I was still drinking though at the time but that probably that might have helped me some uh, just the fact that I didn't feel bad about myself because I was, I would go up there every week, every other week to stay for about three or four days in Dallas and take my p- parents to their doctor visits and and stuff like that. My brother never did because, you know, he was useless. <laughs> How would you say that taking care of and being there for your brother and sister in their last days impact your spiritual life? Well, my sister was a born-again Christian and tried to drag me into her thing. But, uh, uh, you know, at the time, I'd gotten over my uh, my disbelief, I guess. You is that that's what one of the guys at our one meeting says. Is, says, you don't have to believe, but get get over your disbelief. Disbelief, right. right and yeah. that uh, opened the door for... for uh, things to be seen and to, to be felt and and that's kind of where I was then and I I kind of got to the point of spirituality I could see it was something you could I said to myself what is it about spiritual people that makes you think they're spiritual what is it you can see and it's they do things for others and more that they they're more interested in helping others than themselves that'd be my practical definition of spirituality, not sitting and just conjuring God and stuff like that, but actually going out and helping others and helping people. And so I knew that if I wanted to be spiritual, more spiritual, I'd had, that's what I had to do. Yeah, that's a real practical application of spirituality, isn't it? That Yeah, because I can, it could, like a lot of people, I really couldn't see all the other stuff. I can't believe when I don't believe but I, but I can act as if I can do the things that that uh, have a positive influence that, that uh, maybe there is maybe there isn't but if these all have a positive effect both on myself and others so why not <laughs> that's such a such a great way to describe how spirituality handled with good action can make a huge difference in a person's life. And I've seen that with you over the years. I always liked Wiley's statement. You can't think your way into a better way of acting, but you can act your way into a better way of thinking. And that fit perfectly with my psychology (laughs) studies and stuff like that. But the more you do something, pretty soon your brain's going to have to come along. You, You begin to believe that what it is you're doing is the right thing to do and that you need to do it and and, uh, and it seems to work it certainly seems to work for you steve i mean 15 years sober work 20 years 24 years i was in and out of three years yeah and that's amazing though all of what what you denied to yourself during those years right. you've i think made up for in the years that you've been of service and so involved in the program since and I, at least for one, I admire your Thank program. You. I honor you for what you do. Uh, and I, I see you 
at meetings and when you share. I, I know it's from the heart because I've known you a long time. I knew you during those periods yeah. of slipping and uh, most of them. And uh, I'm grateful that you, yeah, the, me too. <laughs> the slips that you did have didn't end your life. Totally. It sounded like they, at, they could have at any time. And uh, I really think that what we've done here today is important because there will be people listening to it. People, there are a lot of people who have slip stories and relapse mm -hmm. stories, but there aren't too many yeah. who have as yeah, many a lot as of you have come, and are still alive to get talk about Dozens it. of uh, desire chips, 20, 30 desire. I only have five. Right. <laughs> when I came in, I gave it a chance. I, but you could see my flaw was that I didn't keep doing it. And, persistence and consistency. Well, it sounds, sounds to me like you've learned how to persist and, and you've learned how to do it. And I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you doing this today, Steve. You're, well, I'm glad you asked me. Well, you're a good man and, and I love you and you've been really terrific in my life. Just getting a chance to see you, you always, seems, always seem to be so upbeat. And I'd like to think that was, you know, there are a lot of guys <laughs> who think that's just because you're such a scratch golfer. But... Uh, you know, how could you not be happy all the time the way you play? But uh, I, I remember I remember the stories you would tell about how you and Jim would go out onto the golf oh, yeah. course. And you know how he used to simmer, yeah. you know, when, he, when he'd make a bad shot or something, it would bug him. But, but you, you've, really, you've really made a big difference in a lot of people's lives, probably beyond the point at which you know it. But being able to see you Thursdays and Sundays every week for – a long time now has been it's been big for me and having you to shake your hands every time I come to a certain meetings it's always a reassuring it is reassuring Steve and, and this will be uh, of great use I think to a lot of people out there who wonder about sobriety and relapse and well, that's one thing Jim said is that, you know you got to make make use of what you learned <laughs> and I tr maybe I've done it to ad nauseum was to share that you know, I've been back out five times. You can come back in, but you don't have to go back out five times. If you learn the lesson, I learned, finally learned. That if you get in the middle, keep doing all these things that really count. It works. Yeah, that's right. So listen to Steve so you won't yeah. have to do what Steve did. You can do what he did this time, but don't do what he <laughs> did the devil, last time. The <laughs> all right, Steve, thanks. Well, my friends, that's it for today's episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, Steve R., for sharing his story, and thank you for tuning in. Of course, you can listen to more than 130 interviews in this podcast series by following it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Amazon, and other podcast providers. Or tell your smart speaker, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, where you can listen to every episode of AA Recovery Interviews. And if you want to contact me directly with any comments or suggestions, simply email howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. Please also take a minute to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA, that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon. <laughs>